Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I, this is my first one for a while. I've actually recorded another one. You guys don't really need to know that, but it'll probably come out soon as well. It's with Solo from Horror Show. Um, their new album, uh, Bardo State, is out this week. In fact, it might actually be out when you're hearing this, so I would highly recommend you go and check that out. He sent me a copy of the album uh, before the interview so I could have a listen to it and sort of talk about it in the interview, and I listen to it over and over and over again. If you aren't familiar with Horror Show, I recommend as a starting point their previous album, uh, King Amongst Many, which is um, was a soundtrack to me being overseas. When I was overseas, I played that album over and over and over again, but their new one is a bit of a transition for them, and uh, it, it's going to be a really interesting album for them, I think. I think it's going to broaden uh, their appeal. Um, I think it's going to sort of confront some people who have been previous fans of them because they're going in a slightly new direction, but I feel like it's an evolution. Anyway, that's all next time. That's a bit of a teaser for the next uh, episode of this, but uh, this is the one I'm going to put up first. Uh, because I've been, this is the great thing about this podcast and the reason it keeps going, because I try to give it up all the time, uh, it keeps going because I've eventually asked somebody that hasn't managed to say yes yet or we haven't managed to get together to do it yet and then that opportunity arises when I see that person and we get to do an episode and this is exactly one of those uh, cases. Uh, I've been talking to this person offline uh, about coming on the podcast for a very long time. Uh, I did an episode with Sovereign Sire. Uh, and if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend it. She's a brilliant woman, very funny, and uh, I just really love that episode. And uh, our next guest's name actually came up in that episode, and we got in contact, and uh, we decided we were going to do it. We found ourselves in Canberra, the nation's capital, and we're finally going to uh, have this podcast. So welcome, uh, my guest, and who are you? My name is Lucy B, and I am a sex worker and activist and huge geek. Now, I want to talk to you about all those things, uh, <laughs> definitely. So let's get to your philosophy first, and then we can just guide ourselves through the rest of the stuff through that. So do you have one? Um, I think I have like a billion. I, I think that comes part and parcel with um, my wonderful uh, ADD brain, um, which um, sort of gives me a lot of things to think on and, and um, changes my thinking on a daily basis. But I guess one thing I'm I'm looking at right now is like, I guess, owning my choices, um, like all my choices, um, even the shit ones. And I think one of the things and one of the reasons I've been focusing on that so much is because I get so much criticism in my life for what I do that um, coming to terms with choices that other people might not agree with has been really powerful for me. But also I think living a life of pleasure ironically like I'm I'm in the industry sorry that's not so surprising um I'm in the business of pleasure but I think for me pleasure in all all things finding pleasure in in little things and and you know um simple things outside of the obvious has been something that I've been trying to do and really simplify my life via doing that how did you come to that because that to me is a very interesting um uh sorry i'm just adjusting my little volume thing here mm. uh that that to me is a very interesting idea the idea mm. of owning your choices mm. like 
I, I feel like people ask me a lot, um, you know, obviously you do a podcast like this and people are always like, what would you say your philosophy is? Mm. And I think about it quite a lot and I think mm. I probably have more than one and people get to hear elements of them by listening to the show and my conversations with other mm. people. But if there was going to be one, mm. a mantra that I probably have for myself is that I chose this. Yeah. Like, you know, I go, I chose this. You yeah. know, the reason that I am here today in Canberra mm. doing a week of trial shows where I walk on stage armed with nothing but a bunch of ideas I've been thinking yeah. about for a few months and try to turn them into the show. I did this on purpose. No mm. one's making me do this. Mm. It's not against my will, although that would be a good show topic. <laughs> uh, but my, my point is that, so where did that come from for you? The idea of going, I chose this. I'm going to own my choices. Do you know what? I think it was very much because like everything you've just said is a constant in my life. Um, I'm having to justify being a sex worker every single day of my life. Um, it's it's a battle. It's a fight. It doesn't always have to be. And I'm getting better at picking the battles that I enter into. Um, I'm never going to please or convince everybody. But um, I guess starting to have to do that about something that I was so passionate about, um, it made me realize that, you know, and, and being in the public eye more meant that people were going to come out and say things about, you know, um, my past and, and, you know, oh, she was a really weird kid and, you know. Um, By the way, everyone was a really weird kid. Exactly, that's the Except thing. Except for the people who are really boring now. The really normal yeah. kids are like, the people who are really boring and have given up on life now, right? Yeah, and do you know what? It's it's like every time I do something publicly, um, someone who I went to school with will come out and be like, I knew her, leak my, 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 my full legal name and um, – you know, try and sort of, I guess, bring me down by the very nature of this past I had where I was this dork and no one wanted anything to do with me and, and I was odd and, you know. And I guess, you know, when I started in the industry as well, I went a bit wild. Like, you know, it was like, party and like, yeah, I'm a porn star and no one believes I'm a porn star. But then I turn around and tell them and I'm like, ah, fuck you. Um, and it's this really great thing. Um, and I really, you know, um, I partied a lot when I started. Um, and I, I think I neglected my friends and my family a bit because I got really caught up in being sort of popular, but then I realized that none of that was for the right reasons and people weren't spending time with me because they wanted to get to know me. It was just because I did something that was kind of raunchy and they thought they could get in my pants, um, which was totally fine. Maybe they could have, but they didn't freaking ask me. Um, they right. just thought that um, by the very nature, free drinks, you know, that'll do it every time. I'm like, right. no, fuck off. Yeah. Um, well, you're going to have to get me $350 worth of free drinks. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it was just like I used to, you know, I looked back on everything I'd done and, and when I started this sort of very public fight, I guess to to have to justify my life, um, I realised that I had to come to, to peace with a lot of the choices I'd made in the past. Um, okay, so that's interesting to me because I think the – well, I mean, I, I assume we'll talk about sex work a bit, but it's for me – when it comes to sex work, I've never really understood. I mean, I'm literally a person who also hires out myself for by the hour, you know, to a large group of people in the same room, but they're all paying money for me to entertain them. And some nights I will feel like entertaining them and I'll be loving it. And I can't, I'll be like, I can't believe I'm even getting paid for this. But a lot of nights I'm out there doing my job and it is my job is to make everybody feel like this is the best night of their life. So that mindset like has always been something that I'm like, well, I get that. And you see, it's particularly in LA, you know, around the comedy scene, there are so many people who work in the sex industry or have crossed over, you know, between the two. Uh, 
that it becomes very familiar. But to a lot of people, sex work is one of those things that has been around forever. Like, I mean, I'm from a country town of 1,200 people and I remember, mm. like, you know, that was a big town near us, but I remember, you know, hearing young enough that there was a sex worker who worked in our town and there yeah. was a sex worker, of course, who worked in every town and has yeah. worked in every town forever. But mm. it has been something that has always been whispered, even yeah. up until this point in this world that we live in. You know, the amount of, like, prominent people who talk about being sex workers while still being sex workers. Like, you mm. know, what you often sometimes used to hear was people who were out of the industry then talking about, you know, their time in it. But the idea yeah. of somebody being in the industry and also being a communicator about the industry, I mean, firstly, that comes with, like, massive responsibilities because you are going to be the target of all these things because suddenly mm. you put your head up and you're speaking on this issue. Um, what made you think i'm going to say this out loud i'm going to tell people i think there was never really a choice for me if that makes sense so the way i was raised i was raised in a household of um really strong women uh -huh. um so i was raised by my mother my grandmother and my great-grandmother they all had an input in in raising me and i lived close to all of them or with them um, for my whole uh, life. I mean, this already sounds like a HBO series. Right, I know. If there is anyone out there looking yeah. for this, I mean, this is, this uh, and is my, the new, new Gilmore Girls. Oh, God. And my great-grandmother was an absolute hoot. Like, she loved Die Hard. She loved really? action movies where if a bad guy got decapitated, laughed her head off. Um, and you'd sit there thinking, this is a little bit inappropriate. Like, Grandma, maybe No, just... I love it. And she just... I love like, if my great-grandma's yeah. last words were yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. But you know what? So would I. <laughs> and and when, when, I mean, when my, my great-grandmother eventually did pass, she, she did it on her own terms as well. She she'd, um, had to move out of uh, the home she was with with my grandmother and she was just ready to go. So she did. Um, and how, how do you think that being raised in a house mm. of all women like that and generations of different women, mm. like how did that impact you? Like what, 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 why do you, what, how do you think you are different because of that? Um, I think every woman in my family has had to struggle in some way with something. Um, you know, I had my first job at the age of 14 at, um, not in the adult industry, um, at McDonald's. Well, clearly you weren't an adult. Yes, so. <laughs> right. But I mean, the, the the funny thing is every so often I'll, I'll be having a conversation with someone and I'll be like, I started working at 14 and I'll be talking about having a normal job, but they'll look at me scandalized thinking right. that I was like trafficked. And I'm yeah. like, okay, that common story that you've heard of the industry is not the story that everybody shares. Calm down. Uh, that does happen. We don't deny it. We do need to talk about it, but that's not me. Um, but I had my first job at 14 and it was partially because, um, you know, my my family instilled in me a work ethic. You know, this was something that you did. You went out and, and, and um, you know, uh, got skills and, and, and worked and stuff like that. But also my mum was quite ill um, when I was younger. Um, she uh, got meningitis twice. Okay. Because she just doesn't do things by half. My right. mum, she's great. Um, so it meant that I had to pick up a lot of responsibility really early on. Um, and, you know, helping sort of with my great-grandmother and helping with my mum and, and seeing what my mum went through. And my mum and I were best friends. And then she got ill and that impacted her. She, she ended up with a, a brain injury. Um, and a low-level one. So if you met her, you wouldn't. You wouldn't know. Right. Um, but then, you know, I know, I knew um, things changed between us. And um, 
it was something that we sort of had to, you know, deal with together. Um, and it was heartbreaking for her because right. she's a really smart, sharp as attack woman. But she gets tired very easily and it was really rough. So I think for people too, I mean, that's like physically I've been in pain mm. for years. I have bad hips and, you know, so the idea that my body is breaking down is something that I've been used to for a very long mm. time. But even now when I can't remember where I put something or, you know, I can't remember the name of someone who I, I should remember the name of that person. And look, partly that is, you know, I hope, because I am bringing so much information into my brain still that it is pushing out some things mm-hmm. that just my brain didn't think needed to be there. Mm-hmm. And I am a person who is constantly consuming information, particularly when I'm putting a show together. But but that idea that my brain will fail me is, is much more scary to me than yeah. the idea that my body will fail yeah, me. Yeah, and I think... Um you know, my my mum has had a lot of struggles in her life. She's she's had to she raised me, you know, on her own in my early life until we moved to where my my grandparents were. Um, and you know, I saw her really work and really fight, and and she instilled in me a um, a love of education and stuff. I, I we we were in Armadale um, when I was quite young. And I practically grew up on the campus at, at UNE because my mum was doing a degree there. Um, so I was in there reading and, and learning all the time. And um, then, you know, learning from their stories, I think, you know, I mean, they were all feminists. That's the other thing. They took life by the reins and they didn't sit there and just be satisfied with what it had dealt them. They said, right, this is a bit shit but I'm not going to sit down and cry and, and, you know, let it get to me. I'm going to take this and I'm going to take this pain and I'm going to use it because my family needs me because I, I deserve more. I deserve better than this. Um, it's why my mum walked away from my dad and I couldn't be prouder and, and more grateful that she did that when I was so young, even though it must have been terrifying. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm not, I'm not by any means a religious person. I was raised in a religious household. But I feel blessed in that I don't think a lot of people get to know their great-grandparents. They don't get to hear those stories. And they don't get to learn so much about their past as I did either. And there was this thread of women who sort of kicked butt. I mean, you know, women, you know, my, my, my um, you know, uh, great grandmother's mother and 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 women in their family just you know having to pop out kids like right. one after the other after the other and I'm sitting there thinking Jesus how is that physically possible but um you know making things work and I think that's you know life hasn't always been easy for me but I've made it work right um and that's definitely something that I've picked up from them. Uh, did you go to a school that had boys and girls at it? Yes, I did. And, so that, and right through school? Because when, what was your relationship with men like? You know, you're living in an all-woman family. There's obviously been like at least, you know, probably some yeah, un, like dudes that you don't want around. So like, you know, mm. so that, that sort of, you know, man without wanting to you know, delve into mm. that, like where you're like, well, mm. you might not have the best opinion of men. Mm. Did you have a good opinion of men when you were growing up? Look, my like my dad was pretty shit, but that's to be expected. And nothing gets me more than being like a hooker with daddy issues. I'm like, right. God damn it. Because <laughs> um, I so want to just be like, no, fuck you and your stereotypes. I fulfill none of these. Piss off. But I yeah. can't. No. Um, Again, it's much like stand-up comedy. Right, <laughs> right. 
parents. Yeah, I, I feel bad sometimes that my parents are still together and yeah. no one touched me funny Dang or whatever. It. I'm like, how can I fit in with the comedy community? It's like, shoot. But I, I feel like um, I didn't have a, you know, I had really strong male influences in my life through... I had some some decent male relatives, but I didn't see them very often. But I had really great male teachers okay. at school, um, particularly in high school. Um, and you liked school? Yeah, I loved school, and then I didn't love school. Okay. I got picked on a lot. Now, why did you get picked on? Um, I was a nerd. Like, I was also a deeply, unesthetically pleasing child. I was short and... And I didn't blossom until two years. Like, I hate that word, blossom. Um, <laughs> I didn't go through puberty until... I didn't realise I hated it until you said yeah, it like that. Right? And now it's I like, hate it. Um, I didn't go through puberty until two years after everybody else. Um, I had short hair and bad skin. And I was, I was literally tiny. Like, I kid you not, I was two heads shorter than every single person in my year. Well, you're still not that tall, right? How, no. old, how tall are you now? About 5'2". Right. Right? But this is the thing. I mean, there was a guy in my year that was pretty damn short as well, but he didn't give as much shit as I did. I was like, what is this? But he was good at sports, right? I wasn't good at sports. I was not even remotely good at sports. Absolutely not. And um, Do you think, and I mean, this is a hard thing to get you to speculate on, but I know that you're still very much interested in like, you know, geek culture mm. and, and those sort of things. Do you think that's a little bit different now? Is there like more credibility to being a bit geeky or a bit nerdy or like being interested in, like it's not just being good at sports. The fact that you might know heaps about some sort of podcast or TV show or whatever might give you some social cachet in the, in the playground now. I think, I think even back then for some people in my year group, it did, but I didn't fit into any particular group. Um, And, you know, I, I was loud and I was opinionated and I was brash um, and they sort of tried very hard to beat that out of me and it didn't work all the time and I was I was a weird kid like I, I had weird opinions and I used to construct these fantasy worlds that I'd escape off into because I was honestly so miserable in my day-to-day life right. and I was in and out of you know therapy and and you know um, the what, school didn't do a thing what's that like? I mean, tell us a little bit about like, you know, because it's easy for us to just talk about mm. this in these clinical mm. terms. But like, I remember what it was like to be a kid and I, mm. and I sometimes over-exaggerate, you know, the social misfit stasis of mm. me because most of it was in my own head. To appearances, I had plenty of friends across, mm. I, I've always been good at having friends across mm. all sorts of, so I'd be friends with the nerdy kids as much as I'm friends with the sporty kids mm. as much as I'm friends with the whatever. Like that's, you know, one of the things that I have been good mm. at in my life. But I felt alone and I felt like, you know, that no one understood me. And I, you know, I would fucking cry to myself to sleep some nights. And I feel like I probably had a pretty good school life. So what it's like, what is it like when you every day are kind of living this life? It was absolute hell. Like I, the impacts of that time in my life haunt me now. Um, There's going to like one day there'll probably be some sort of reunion and I'm going to need to go with like, uh, you know, eight of my current friends as backup because I'm going to have to get in the door. And I do have close friends from my school days. I have people who I knew at school who were really good friends to me now who weren't good friends to me then. Okay. And I had a couple of people from my school days apologize. Um, and I have had a few friends, you know, people from my school days add me on Facebook because I guess they felt that because they weren't directly complicit that 
where like we're all besties now and I'm like no 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 you did nothing so you were still involved soz but this is the thing well, and that's the interesting thing though because what we uh also need to remember is that they were also children mm-hmm. and that often if you are a person like it sometimes it's only later in your mm-hmm. life that you realize that just doing nothing means that you can be complicit yeah you know it's 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 for example it doesn't matter how good a feminist or a you know, gay rights activist mm. or any of these things that I purport to be, mm. it's not enough to just be those things yeah. because you are already benefiting from a system that is set up to benefit people who look and sound mm. and fuck like me, right? Mm. Like, right. so if you're not doing something, if you're just cruising along by doing no harm, you're still complicit in the system. And mm. it took me years to realise that fully. And, and yeah. still I'm in the process of like actively mm. trying to, you know, address that and mm. do things and like make change so mm. you know for children like i can imagine back then like you know you you wouldn't have that understanding you would hope yeah. as an adult they might come to the understanding mm. that that's what it was but i don't necessarily judge the children as much as i judge the you know the the lack of recognition or understanding does that make sense is that yeah. an oversimplification mm. i think i think it makes sense in some ways but i think and and i've learned from some of the people i've spoken to since then that they were going through their own set of sort of horrible stuff. But there was one particular group of kids, right, who I will never, ever, 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 ever in my life forgive. And so what was it about what they were doing to you that is unforgivable? It was telling rumours. It was like growing up being told every day that I was disgusting to look at and I was ugly. Um, it It was being laughed at for simply opening my mouth and having an opinion. And it was at the point where they had friends at other schools who had friends at other schools. I would walk down the streets of my hometown and have rotten fruit thrown at me. You know, kids from schools who I didn't even know hated me. Um, it was a horrible time in my life. I mean, it's amazing. And look, some amateur mm. psychologists will want to draw a direct, direct line between that and what you're doing now. Yep. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I will go the – like, well, so I guess same amateur psychologist path but maybe mm. in a different like way of looking at it, which is – that I think it's so incredibly amazing and brave and whatever that you've ended up doing what you're doing with your life, mm. considering they were the things that people tried to beat out of you. Like you're literally saying people told you every day that you don't look good enough and you've gone into a profession where people are going to judge you on the way that you look. And secondly, that you were telling people don't don't have opinions, don't speak up and getting mm. mocked for those. And yet you've gone into a, a public speaking role and a pub, public mm. advocacy role, which is literally, again, you putting yourself in the firing line of receiving those same sort of feedback that you received back then. I mean, I think that's that in itself to me is amazingly strong mm. because what they were trying to do was beat those things out of you, but it seems like you've instead embraced those things. So tell me a little bit about the, and again, here's yeah. a word I don't like, journey, but the, yeah. <laughs> the link, the, the progression, the whatever it is between those two like states. I think that's... I think a lot of it has to do with, again, growing up with those strong women. Like this was instilled in me that I had this very much this sense of what was right and wrong and, and standing up for people and people being equal and how important that was. And I don't think it was – I don't think it was conversations that my family and I explicitly had. It was just in the way that I saw them treat people, you know, and it was – you know, they were generous and kind and it didn't matter who someone was. And I knew very early on, I mean, you know, I, I even even though those people did some horrendous things to me, I couldn't bring myself to go to that level. I mean, one, I don't think there's much I could have done to retaliate. I could turn around and swear and go on. And occasionally I did. 
Um, but I was so deeply depressed and and it was so horrible and and it took a it's I remember clearly like my mother and grandmother fought so hard for me with the school. They would have t- taken me to another school, but there was nowhere I could go. There was nowhere I could go. And um, you know, it took a child psychologist contacting the school, reminding them of their legal obligations and their duty of care for them to actually just take me as something other than a kid coming to the office crying all the time, fucking up their day. Um, I got accused of witchcraft at school. That was exciting. Uh, my Yeah, right? Um, I'd, I'd been, as I said, I used to construct these fantasy worlds and run around and do all this bullshit and play these games, like these make-believe pretend games with my friends. Yeah. And I got accused, I got taken up to the office and accused of witchcraft. Oh my God. And I remember messaging my mum being like, Shit, mum. Yeah, because like, you went to school in Salem during the witch trials, yeah, right? right? And and I remember um, <laughs> messaging. I messaged my mum, going, "Mum, you know, I, I think I called her." Yeah, and she she just said, "Just stay put. Don't worry." She called the school and said, "You are not to talk to her." unless I'm there. They continued to try and talk to me, but then also got the shits at me for using my mobile phone at school. And I'm like, hang on a second. The only reason I've done this is because I'm not quite sure what's going on here is by the book. And normally I would have contacted her by witchcraft, but <laughs> like, I'm, normally, I'm not allowed to. And then I remember, the, I remember the principal left the room and there was a broom in the corner of the office he left me in. I remember <laughs> as he's walking out, our, our heads turned in the same way. And I looked at it and I said, don't worry, I'm not going to fly away. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was – I think I was in grade 10 or something at that point. And I think something a, – a, a switch flicked, uh-huh. right? I was going into year 12, like year 11 and 12, yep. which was another school just across the road. Okay. Most of these people would still be there. But I was just sort of like, do you know what? Fuck it. I don't care anymore. You don't like me. I don't particularly like you, but I'm not stupid. And I'm going to say whatever the damn hell I want. So – um, I started doing, you know, public speaking competitions and stuff. When I got into year 11 and 12, I sat up and I like, I, I did a speech where I called um, most of my year group sheep and um, it was true. Um, but, um, you know, so I, I won some, I won some awards there and, and I started throwing myself into spe- like drama and stuff like that more, which I'd, I'd always loved. And um, when mum, mum got sick around that time, um, with meningitis the first time and, and prior to that that it had been with other things. And, and um, I decided to do year 12 through a Pathways program. Uh-huh. Um, what does which, that mean? So it basically means you take your HSC and you do it over two years because why not prolong the torture for as long as possible? Right. But it meant that I was doing three subjects um, and I had more time to go and, and they say for you to study, for me it was so I could work because right. someone had to help pay the rent. And um, no, I get that. When I was at mm. university here, I was uh, here in Canberra. Um, I was working full time while I was studying full time, you know, trying to pay for my education. My mm. parents were helping me because they had been brilliant, but they were working mm. class people and they had two other kids. So mm. I was trying to do my best. And that's how I'd been raised since 15. Mm. I'd always had a job and um, I worked full time when I was at uni. And I remember the only morning I got up really early was the morning they assigned the classes because I needed to get mine onto two days. So I had my entire yep. class load on two days so that I could yep. have five days a week to work. So I can't even imagine what that would be like. I mean, that was hard enough when I was 19 years old at university. I can't imagine what it's like when you're 16 years old and you're also caring for a sick parent. Yeah, and do you know what? I mean, I, I don't want to overplay what I did at that time because, you know, I could have done more 
you know, I was a brat a lot of the time because I was struggling with what was going on with my mum and the fact that she wasn't this person that I knew anymore. She was still the same person, but things had slowed down and they were different. And I wasn't getting from her exactly what I wanted when I wanted it. And um, I, I look back on that time and I know she doesn't hold it against me, but I wish I'd done more. Um, there was a maturity though that, you know, I was, I was a teenager that I still lacked that I had to develop over time. But, um, and she would have completely understood that. Like, I mean, that's the thing because like, I mean, kids are, I mean, as an adult, I often just like occasionally get haunted by flashbacks Mm. of times where I was just in a, because my parents were brilliant and like, you know, really gave me all the opportunities they could while working full time Mm. on a fucking dairy farm, you know, Mm. like, and I remember once my mum got, this is so petty, my mum got, I was in, I reckon I was about 13 and I made a new friend, his name was Bede White, and I really liked him and I wanted, I didn't think that I was cool enough to be friends with him and I was quite good at basketball because I was tall then and so he was coming to watch me play Mm. basketball and my mum got the time wrong and we got there late and Mm. I remember just chucking the big, to this day, I still occasionally, like if I'm having a restless sleep, I'm reminded of that moment and I'm like, fuck you, fuck you. If I had seen that little kid, like if if I'd been there that day, I'm surprised someone didn't come over and punch me in the fucking (laughs) face. Do you know what? For mum, (laughs) for mum and I, it was money, right? So we, we moved to Port Macquarie, which is where I did most of my schooling, right? And if you didn't have a billabong backpack in Uh Port Macquarie, your life was going to be hell. You were destined for failure. Or if you weren't like a goth or something, so uh-huh. you had like some sort of other weird looking bag for badges and shit, then you were fine, right? Like if you were a bit different, but if you were the right kind of different, right. you know, that was okay. And I was like, what the fuck do I have to do? And I remember changing the way I looked and the shoes I wore to school and the bag I had within the confines of this shitty uniform system. Um to try desperately to just fit in somewhere and it was like this is never gonna work and and the point where yeah the point where I hit that point and apparently I was a goddamn witch I was like I'm just gonna stop trying because I can't do this anymore and well, it's what you're saying about like I mean it's an amazing phrase you just used which I've never really thought of as, as, as succinctly as that which is the right kind of different mm. because I think sometimes we are confronted by genuine difference we're okay with d- difference we can identify. Mm. You know, like you said, they're the goths or they're yeah. the, you know, whatever, right? I yeah. can identify that weirdness. Mm. But if it is weirdness that they, people want to put a label on you. Yeah. You can't just be, you know, who you are. You're a fucking no. witch, apparently. Yeah, I know, right? I'm like, shit. I mean, well, don't get me wrong. she's a goth and she doesn't have a billabong backpack, so I guess she's a witch. Exactly. It was just, it was the most bizarre. And I look, I do, obviously, someone had heard me in my little fantasy playtime with my friends and stuff like that. And and um, I, I, I loved fiction and sci-fi and fantasy, so that's probably sure. where a lot of that came from. So someone's heard that and gone and, and reported onwards and, and you know, fucking I, – I was just like – at that point, I, I just – I mean, that's, that's school That school must have really been shocked once Harry Potter became popular. Yeah, I'm like, awkward. <laughs> um, but, I mean, they told – I remember my, my mother went into a meeting with them and they told her that they knew that this was going to happen to me. They knew that I was going to be picked on because I was a little bit different and that the kids that they were claiming were responsible – and this is over a couple of different principles right. – the kids that they were claiming were responsible couldn't possibly be responsible because they came came from uh, 
good Christian families, mm. good Christian families that donated sports equipment and had lots of money. Um, not saying there's a correlation or anything there. Like, no. <coughs> Why would you? Uh, no. Other than that it's a fact that how the world works and has always worked. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> and the, I think the other, it was funny because like at the same time as this was happening, I was goddamn, like I was an altar server, uh-huh. right? Like how did I not, if I was actually a witch, how did I not just walk into the church and burst into flames? They were picking me to read things at mass. I'm like, do, I'm like, what do you think that I'm actually like? I've got an upside down crucifix tattooed somewhere on my body, and I'm going up the front to the church saying a silent "fuck you" as I read from the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, that would be a sneaky plan for a witch to put in place. <laughs> right? But I'm like, how do you if we if we're gonna go with the typical readings of like witches and vampires and shit and literature and like how am I getting into this church in the first place? I need to know. But uh, okay, so you. you you finished high school? Mm. You eventually finish your two years? Um, I don't. No. So I left after one year. Uh-huh. I did one year and again, it was the second point in my life where I'm like, I cannot do this anymore. Um, the school didn't care about me. Um, I had a couple of teachers that did and were great, but I didn't feel supported. I didn't feel looked after and I still felt like my needs versus uh, these kids that were – performing more spectacularly in more areas, you know, and I didn't do poorly in the three subjects. So I completed three HSC subjects. I didn't do poorly in those exams, Um, you know, but I'd thrown my heart and soul into things like drama and and other kids had come out on top still. And I was just like, you get to a point where like, what do I have to do to, to just to have a win here? Right. What I'm, I'm trying so hard. Yeah. So what's for me? Yeah. So at this point, um, you know, I, I, I said to, and my, my mom, I think was a bit gutted. I think she would have liked to see me go all the way through. And I had friends in the year below, so I I would have had people around me, but I was like, I can't be in this place another year of my life. I can't do it. I can't wait for my life to start. I need to go out there and and make it happen. So, uh, I think realistically mom felt the same way. And uh, it was a time of quite a lot of transition for our family and we ended up in Queanbeyan uh, because mum got a job in Canberra and this is where it all kind of started. Like I went straight into retail and that was great and I dabbled in public service which sucked my soul out through my eyes and that was not so great. Um, And I remember I just – I moved out of home for the first time and I – it was this really good time in my life started going to some real freaky parties, excellent time in my life, Um, and discovered myself sexually, I honestly, in a way that I hadn't had the chance to, because I wasn't seen as a, you know, all through high school, I wasn't seen as an attractive or sexual person. Managed to lose my virginity because I had a lot of good friends in Sydney um, through, through other interests and stuff like that. And um, so ticked all those boxes, did a lot of like interesting stuff, regardless of my like social prize <laughs> status, but got to Canberra and met a really interested, like interesting group of people who were very fluid with their concepts of monogamy and sexuality. And that's where I really sort of started to grow. So how did you uh, discover these people? Oh God, just, I guess I worked, I worked in retail and I met people there and then um, I had a friend, one of my closest friends from school went to uni here and, and, and he had friends and I always had really good male friends, you know, and, um, I wasn't banging all of them. Um, some of them, not all of them. Um, but I always had really good male friends 
And um, that, I guess, was a constant. I guess that filled, uh, you know, here we go. Um, chair psychology. Here we go. But like, um, I guess that filled some of the gap that was in, in my life from, you know, when I left school, I didn't have these teachers anymore. And, and um, I wouldn't have got through school without those men either. Like I, I need to harp on that. There was someone named Mr. Jennings and someone named Mr. Riley and they fought for me in a way that no one else had fought for me. And like I get emotional thinking about it because I felt like I mattered and no one else was making me feel that way. You know, my family was, but no one else. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, <clears throat> I think about how poorly teachers get paid. And I think about how hard it must be to be a teacher. And I also know, because I experienced plenty of them myself, that there are a myriad of terrible teachers. But amongst those, there are some great teachers. And there are some who recognize something in you and they will pursue it and they will fight for you and those sort of things. And I still, like, I think back on that. There were times, like, I wrote a, um, when I was, I must have been in about year 10 or year 11. And, you know, I was particularly, you know, my major sort of prevailing streak through my life is that, like, you know, I have a an anti-authoritarian streak that I don't really know where it comes from, but it manifests itself all the time. And it's why I always get in trouble when I'm around, you know, unearned authority, as I like to think of it. <laughs> yeah. But... I wrote this uh, article, like a, no, it was an essay in an exam in the year 11, I think. And we had to write something about why kids should get presents on Christmas Day. And I wrote this letter as if it was from a parent who'd lost, who'd given their kids no Christmas presents, but then the kid had died in a car accident. And, then it, and it was like really yeah. this like heart-wrenching thing. Mm. And then down the bottom, I signed it, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so, blah, 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 chief of Maya Toys, executive, mm. like whatever. There was like a funny twist at yeah. the end. and. I remember that they were going to fail me for it because they mm. thought that it had undermined the piece. But I had this one teacher, Mr. Simons, who mm. argued, he goes, no, 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 this is like, this is better. You know, like, yeah. like he wrote the thing. He, like, yeah. you could not read that, but this is, you know, him, this is what he's going to do. Yeah. This bit at the end, this bit where he pulls the yeah. carpet underneath, this yeah. is actually to be celebrated. And yeah. I remember it became a big thing. My parents got called in and stuff and they really fought over it. And this mm. one teacher, who I've never... I give him a shout out occasionally when it comes yeah. up, this sort yeah. of story, in the hope that at some stage yeah. he'll either at least hear about it or yeah. uh, something. But <clears throat> anyway, so you, uh, you're you in Canberra, mm -hmm. you're starting to discover your, you know, your sexuality. Mm -hmm. and, in what, and in what, like, I mean, without yeah, prying mm -hmm. for details, like when you say that, like, uh, are you dating? Are you dating different people? Are you going I was, to, how is that kind of manifesting itself? So I dated some really shit people. I was in some fairly dodgy and, and abusive relationships um, with guys that, like, are so much like my father. It's uh -huh. not funny. I was like, oh, shit. You come out of those relationships and there's this, like, stereotypical never date a man that's exactly like your father. Unless you have a great dad, in which case, like, go nuts. But, um, like, go nuts, but I still find that slightly weird. No, no, that's, that's weird too. <laughs> I'm like, eh. Um, Either way, but, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, but, if, you, if he's too like your dad, yeah, that's I'm really like, weird. Props and to everyone who has, like, a non-absentee father in life, but... Woo. Yeah, no, I'll forgive the people. I would prefer I, – I kind of understand the ones who hook up with the bad dudes who are yeah. like their bad dude dads, yeah. but not the ones who <laughs> no. hook up like, I just want a guy who's exactly like my dad. Oh, no, that's worse. Whoa, Nelly. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, look, I'm, <laughs> I'm the adult. I've, I, I've seen it all. I, if I haven't seen it all, I've heard of most of it. Right. Um, so I, you know, I was in some really crummy relationships, but then 
also, like, I, I met some uh, great friends just out at, at the gay club here in Canberra, here at, like, a cube, you know, and I, I liked girls and I liked boys and um, I was too scared to go near girls because, like, I could I – could, I didn't give a shit about guys. Like, I assumed that if someone was interested, they would approach me and right. I just couldn't be bothered. But the thought of going near a girl filled me with utter dread. I'd be like <laughs> – hi and then i just run off um it was just like <laughs> totally embarrassing it's okay she's a witch yeah right exactly so then um I, I managed to find um you know i i found myself in a relationship with a guy who is just a fucking amazing human being and who um i'm not with now but who is is with another friend of mine and who it will be someone who will be in my life for the rest of my life because was just such an amazing human. And we, we went to cool parties, you know, um, and, and I started experimenting with things like swinging and I, I dabbled a little before as a single woman, um, dabbling with a partner was totally different and then going and exploring kink and stuff like that, which. So, cause I've uh, mm. never, uh, been in that situation mm. and not to say that I like, don't necessarily think, think <laughs> that if I had a different life, yeah, you know, if I had a more anonymous life, perhaps mm. it's something that you know might have interested mm. me. I've got a broad sort of sexual taste, you know. Like, mm. um, I don't think that people in this podcast want to hear much about my sex life. So Do you know what? With really a gimp mask, up, you can but, achieve anything. Well, yeah. So don't don't just close yourself off yet, okay? <laughs> They'll be like, I recognise that bad hip walk. <laughs> Adam Hills. No, uh, that's why all fours, all fours in a leash, no problems. Yeah. It's all right, I got this. <laughs> but um, you know, what is that you know, world like? I mean, you know, from yeah. someone who, because you know, you read an article of someone who's like, I went to my first swingers, but it yeah. always feels like it's a tourist. Like, anytime you hear yeah. an experience of that, it's from someone who went to it to write an article about it or whatever, rather than yeah. somebody who was actually just going to it and it's always filtered through their parameters so tell me what that was was like the first few times I ever went to parties like that I was absolutely terrified because again I had very you know I knew how to dress up for instance you know um roughly understood how to do my makeup kind of figured out you know how that all how to girl right Right. (laughs) but still super low opinion of myself um what I knew was that I gave excellent blowjobs. I knew that for mm. certain. I'd had enough solid feedback that I was like, cool, <laughs> I've got this. Okay, fine um, So if all goes to shit, yep. right, just do that. Right. Um, but also like... Um, <laughs> Plus you're short. You yeah, know, perfect. Yeah, right. It works hey, really well. Yeah. Um, but also, I, you know, I knew that um, I'd made out with girls in bars occasionally and that was favorably looked on. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to a party full of people who kind of want to like get with each other. I've got at least two adequate skills. Uh Like we'll be right. We'll be sweet. I was still terrified. And I thought I'm going to be like the one, I'm going to be the wallflower. I'll be the last, I'll be the one not picked. I'll be sitting, everyone will be off banging each other and I'll just be sitting at the corner, like, you know, doing nothing, watching, furiously masturbating and that's it. Um, But (laughs) like, Right, this is this is what I thought, but that's not what happened. What right. I found was this really cool, open group of people who were so ready to like welcome me into their sort of their crew uh-huh. and say this is what it's all about and this is what you can do. And I was experiencing new things, and I was I've always been for the most part more sexually experienced than my uh, than my partners. Okay, um, just because 
I, I, I didn't have a lot of one night stands, but I had good friends who had interests and I had a lot of friends who were a little older than me who had interests like kink or swinging, um, you know, um, and I had this way of meeting the right people at the right time. You know, I, as I said, I met one of my really good friends dancing on a stripper pole at Cube and, uh, and, and then, you know, uh, he and his girlfriend were there together and next minute. Um, I've always said that stripper poles are a gateway drug to swimming. You know, they really are, right? <laughs> I've been like those stripper poles. I've been, I've been in like a five-girl make-out session around a stripper pole at Cube and I have such fond memories of Canberra <laughs> for that reason. You know, but I also, you know. Well, even just that, let's just quickly mm. touch on that because um, what was Canberra like as a scene? Because, of course... Mm. To people outside Canberra, I know mm. a little bit more about like, you know, Canberra having lived here a bit and visited mm. here quite often. But to people who look at Canberra as being, you know, Parliament House and politicians mm-hmm. and those sort of things, what was the actual Canberra sort of, you know, I guess sex scene, but also just yeah. party scene or whatever mm. it was? What was that scene like? We used to have to travel a lot. Like we used to go to Sydney for a lot of the sort of more swinger party style stuff. But then um, there was also like you know, there, there was a healthy kink scene here in Canberra. Um, and I had sort of through friends, you know, through a friend I had in Sydney, um, I had explored kink there and found that I was quite dominant in that sense. And, um, and what, uh, what, what is it about that? Because is that a mm. state of mind or is that a, like, I mean, I, that's not an area that I've ever mm. really had much interest in one way or the other. So, what do you think the dominant submissive relationship is? You know, when I first started getting involved in kink, I was like, I am submissive because I am a woman. Right. And most of the parties I was going to, that was, there was a dominant man and a submissive woman. And then I met my first dominatrix. It's good to see that, you know, internalized misogyny happens. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so great. But I was like. Oh, yeah. again. And she's probably not getting paid as much either. Yeah. But this is the thing. <laughs> I was, I remember. My my I grew my so very close friend of mine and and he was gay he was a gay man who was into kink but it wasn't quite so sexualized for him so he had a female dominatrix mm-hmm. that used to tie him up and do all sorts of wonderful things to him right and he was very close friend of mine and and he said you're not you're not like I know like he's like it's good that you're trying this submissive stuff and I'm gonna be really patient and supportive as a friend to you but this is not where you fit yeah. he's like and as your friend. I'm, I'm never going to be someone who dictates to you, but I'm dictating to you. This is not where you fit. Right. Anyway, I remember we went over to his, the, the house of, of the dominatrix that he was, um, he was seeing. And I remember she had uh, this, this guy um, who was like in service to her. He was in a gimp mask and he was um, crawling around the floor cleaning and stuff like that and for me like I'd seen it all at parties at that point you know this wasn't but just I I wasn't that into male submissives at that point I just it just wasn't my thing Uh but um he was there and she's like um I've just got to go into this this like the next room and and have a chat to my friend and and she was like if he bothers you she's like just tap him with your shoe and I was like I kind of like what the fuck do you mean tapping with your shoe? Like, I can't, what am I going to do? What do you mean tap? Like, what's a tap? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to just like, where, where do I tap? What is this? So um, I, I was like, I was like, I sort of looked at her and she's like, you're not going to hurt him. It's fine. He's got like 80,000 layers of latex on at this point. And like, she's like, don't worry. She's just like, just give him a, a knock on the side um, and, and he'll know. And I was like, 
So I was wearing a particularly nice pair of boots that day, not kinky boots, just like a normal pair of leather boots. And I was sitting on the couch and I was really sort of anxious and I'm waiting and I'm like, why the fuck am I here? Like, what are we doing? Like, just fucking Jesus. And he came over a few times and was like snuffling near my boots. And I'm like, dude, back the fuck up. And I'm like, I looked at him, I said, no, just can you just like not? And I was really awkward. And he did this like half a dozen times until finally I just gave him like a sharp tap on the side with the side of my boot, looked at him, pointed and said, no, the way I would like one of my friend's dogs. Right. Right. And then my friend's standing in the doorway with this with this woman and he goes, I fucking told you. Right. Because he scarpers, <laughs> this guy in this skin mask scarpers the fuck off. And I look up and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. She's like, never apologize. Right. She's like, cruel one, never apologize. And she taught me everything I knew. So I used to I used to meet with her quite regularly and, and she taught me all this amazing stuff. Um, well, I mean, again, like, mm. uh, you yeah, filtering it through the idea mm. of like your, your philosophy of like, you know, being the person who chooses things, being the yeah. person who like, you know, it feels to me that out of that relationship, mm. of course you're the person who's choosing what the other person should do, not rather yeah. than the one who's in the position of being told what to do. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed um, – I was very specific. Like I didn't want to learn at all. I just wanted to learn some of it. And and we'd sort of go through and she'd be like, do you want to learn how to do this? And I'd be like, yeah, I want to learn how to do that. And um, for a while that played a really big part of my life. Um in terms of you know a lot a lot of different a lot of different things whether it was the events I was attending and stuff like that, um, I, I rediscovered you know I'd, at swingers parties and some of the early kink parties I'd gone to I, I was quite scantily clad and and that was kind of a thing and then when I started learning more about dominance I found the power in being clothed uh-huh. and for me that was I think like I don't know it was kind of like a eureka moment because up until that point because my opinion of myself still wasn't particularly high. And I say that like it's like skyrocketed now. It hasn't. Like I stress as much if not more than most people um, about my physical appearance. Um, But I think at that point I realized, okay, I don't have to get my gear off just to be seen as an attractive, powerful, strong, you know, human being. And that was really – that was a huge deal for me. Um, so I was going to a lot of events after that and I was uh, dressed I, – I used to wear suits. I used to wear suits a lot. I used to go to these parties and I used to be wearing suits and like corsets and I used to have this stone cold like I will kill you with my eyes look on my face. Um, and people used to have a real problem with it because they were like you're under the age of, you know, you're like 20-something. I was in my early 20s and you're calling yourself a dominatrix and how the fuck do you know? And I'm like because I've learned these five things and I've learned them damn well and I won't do anything other than those five things because I'm not an idiot and I also don't drink and dom. It's like drinking and driving, you idiot. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> this is the thing. <laughs> Uh, before you dom, could you just blow into this? I mean, no, I mean, yeah. no not blow into this. Like. This is the thing, though. Don't you can't have it, someone with a whip when you're pissed. Like, right, that's it's a good point. End that, no, you're right. It's all fun and games um, until someone loses an eye. Exactly, and it's very possible. And there's also all sorts of other things you should like. I, I've, I witnessed things at parties that used to make my toes curl in the wrong way. Like, do you know what sounding is? No. <laughs> it involves the placing of a steel rod inside. Uh, yeah, there you go, know. right? But I've know. seen people, I've seen I women who are more experienced rolling uh, drunk. 
Yeah, ah. right? Now, I'm a woman and I'm crossing my legs uncomfortably oh. at that. I'm just like, oh, hell no. But this is the thing. So there was this big problem and I, I guess that was one situation early on in this exploration of sexuality and, uh-huh. and, and that sort of thing where I had to sort of assert myself and be like, okay, cool. You, you, you're dictating a lot by my age and that's fine. I understand. You've had years of experience on me, but I'm cautious and that was a, a big deal for me. Outside of that though, I also had all these friends and we were having crazy house parties and a lot of people were getting their gear off. Right. So that was a little, that was a little less kinky and a little more sexy. So, uh, well, I think uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the idea of dressing up mm. because I know that, you know, still you have an interest in cosplay mm-hmm. and, and so what, what is your relate rather than me, mm. you know, putting on what I think it's mm. about, tell me why you like doing that and what the appeal of is to that and like what the community is like in, in regard to um, that. I think it's like, I, I've always loved, you know, games and comics and stuff like that. And I loved dressing up. I mean, when I started getting into kink and then further into sex work and stuff like that, it was like, wow, um, look at all this lingerie. Oh, my God. Um, and I have a I have a total lingerie and costume addiction. Like, it's not even funny. And that's anywhere from, like, sexy, sexy costumes to cosplay costumes, um, which a lot of people would say are just as sexy for a lot of reasons. Like, one of my... my biggest cosplays is this armor that's made of foam and it's a bitch to get into and it's a bitch to get out of but people are like yes and, I'm like, um, and every so often someone will request it in right. a booking and i'll be like okay so you want me to put this on in an hour booking and i can guarantee you it's gonna take an hour just to get out of it right. and that, then that's, i'm that's gonna have booking. to have a shower because i'm gonna be sweaty as hell and it's like what's going like outside looks sexy what's going on behind this armor is not sexy i'm sorry um but i don't know i guess i just i didn't know i I started going to conventions which i didn't know were a thing in australia like i'd heard about comic con and stuff in the states and then i started going to conventions and then the next thing you know i'm seeing all these people dressed up and i'm going hey it's kind of cool i could do that i could maybe possibly do that and i i'm not crafty um, well, I was, I, I sort of was creative, but I wasn't, I'm like, I can't sew for shit, man. Like, no way. Um, but I discovered there were websites on the internet oh and you God. could buy the costumes. And wow. I was like, well, so I, I dressed up as this, all sorts of websites. Uh, oh, I out. know. <laughs> and I've worked for quite a few of them. Um, but I, I remember I dressed as this character called Moxie from a game called Borderlands and she was quite a sexy, raunchy sort of character. She wore like this ring, circus ringleader's jacket and no pants. And I was like, yes, no pants. Um, because I, I remember I was like, I'm practically flat chested, but I've been squatting most of my life. So I've got a like fucking A grade ass and I'm going to show that off. Uh-huh. So I, I managed to find little attributes. And that's, I think, where my confidence built because I was like, I like this about myself and I like this about myself and I'm confident in that. So... I remember I it was this character and she had like seven like she had like four or five seven husbands or something and right. there was this amazing YouTube clip from the game and I was like I love this woman I want to be this woman so I, I dressed up for a gaming convention and that was the first time I did it and after that the buzz you get from doing that 
like the looks on people's faces when you're dressed as someone they know and they point and they spot you and they're like so enthused and happy and you're stopped for photos every five seconds, which has somewhat lost its lost its glamour. Um, but you get really, really just sucked in. And then- Well, I mean, I imagine it's like from going to, like it sounds like, you know, you, you had a high school experience where you didn't feel like you fit into a community and then you've, you know, you come out of that and you've found mm. this kind of sex community mm-hmm. or this community, not just a sex but, you know, like that has that aspect of yep. that in it. And then again, you're going to this other place mm. where instead of people rejecting you for being a bit weird or out mm. there, what you're finding is people are embracing you for the exact same things. Yes. So, and, and, and I think it is why those conventions are so powerful i do the mm-hmm. la podcast festival every year yep. with my other podcast tofop and we love it because mm-hmm. it's a bunch of like we joke about it every year it's a whole bunch mm-hmm. of people who normally do this thing by themselves yep. and they're all there together in a room yep. and none of them really know how to relate to other people but they're yep. all kind of as unrelatable and so it becomes yep. this beautiful community you know? yeah and i also got to meet people that i admired so i would go and i would meet you know they obviously have celebrity guests and stuff at these things i've met stan lee twice and i oh, nice. bumbled my way through both of those um meetings like i was just like Pfft. i was dressed as harlequin I remember I mean, can I walked you imagine up. how many of those conversations yeah. Stanley's had to have though? Because yeah, <laughs> I I met I met I met Stan like the, it was one of the second conventions I've uh-huh. ever been to, and I met Stanley and Patrick Stewart at the same convention, wow. and I almost I was a mess, and I was with a friend of mine, and he was like, "Are you are you okay?" And I was like, "I'm not okay." I'm not okay right now. I'm really not okay. <laughs> and I was like, I, I, it was, it was like white girl wasted. I can't, I can't even right now. I can't. Um, and then the second time I was with my mum, and I took her to her first convention because she's right into that stuff too. Okay. She nice. met John Barrowman from Torchwood, which because uh-huh. we're Doctor Who nuts, yeah. and she giggled. And she met Carl Urban and she also giggled and it was adorable. And I was like, <laughs> and I was just so cute. But I, I met him the second time dressed as Harley Quinn. And I remember that's a DC character. And I went in and I was like, I'm dressed as DC. I'm sorry. And like, that was all I managed to garble out. <laughs> and he's like, you look fantastic. And I was like, oh God. And it's just, it's. Like, it's this, I wander out. My friends will like leave me at the door to get my photo. And like, it's like you go in behind this wall and it is 30 seconds of your life, uh-huh. if that. And then you walk out and I walk out sort of dazed and just like, what? It's like it's like towards the end of a, of a bout of Mortal Kombat when the person's standing there <laughs> swaying and all you've got to do is give them one last kick to knock them over. Yeah, it's like the finish, finish her moment of like Mortal Kombat. That's what I look like when I come out of meeting these people. I've met so many of the cast members of Stargate. It's not funny. And I like <laughs> die every time. Uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica. Holy shit. I've met, I think, four of the previous Doctors. Um, and favorite, I, Who's your favorite Doctor Who? Oh, God. The, we look, get, finally, we're getting to the big questions on this podcast. You know, who is your favorite Doctor Who? Look, David Tennant, but also like um, Paul McGann. Oh, Paul McGann. Like, there you go. That's uh, good. That's a, so what was it about Paul McGann's doctor? that? Because that's not a choice that people necessarily make that often. Okay. I've sat next to him at a VIP lunch for a 50th anniversary and we spoke about Shakespeare and that said it. Like I already loved that telemovie. Like I was like, hi. <laughs> um, he was the original like romance doctor for me as well. Like right. that sort of like romantic hero. And I don't need that to like Doctor Who. I like plenty of the previous doctors. Don't get me wrong. You know, like I love 
Sylvester McCoy. Yes. <laughs> I love Sylvester McCoy. Um, and, and, and William Hartnell, you know, for totally different reasons again, but I was just like, <laughs> it was just, it was pretty pathetic. I was right. just like, I, I remember watching that telemovie and being like, they, they've bought this other aspect and I would have loved to see. And he's doing the audios right. now, so which my, is so cool. My friend Adam Richard, mm-hmm. who I'll get on this podcast at some yeah. stage, but he is a massive fan of the audio, the yeah. Paul McGann audio. Yeah. He, he, he rates them very highly. Yeah, and he's just, he's just, it, it was just, I don't know. I just felt something. And, and, and then he sat next to me and I felt something totally different. <laughs> Like I just, I was like sitting. Is that a uh, sonic screwdriver <laughs> in your pocket? Or no, a- I wish. <laughs> but no, but he sat, I, I ended up in with, with the empty seat next to me and I just sort of looked at him and was like, please don't be weird. Like, don't be weird. Lucy, don't be weird. I'm just in my head going, don't be weird, don't be weird, don't be weird. I'm like heavy breathing. <laughs> and he, he spoke about Shakespeare, which I love. And I was just like, stop it. In my head, I'm like, I can't deal with this. Don't talk to me. I'm going back in my little bubble. And I do this horrible thing where I, I laugh. I'm just like, ah! oh, my God, this is deeply embarrassing. Because I don't know what to say. Like, I fangirl out. It's horrible. I'm broken. <laughs> so it's, it, well, it's interesting to me that because, I mean, I imagine, like, in your professional life, mm. you know, the idea that you have to meet with strangers, mm. like, you know, or, you know, people that you might not know very mm. well, and create a rapport straight away Mm. is a skill that you have to have, right? Yeah. See, I – it's funny that we're talking in Canberra because I started in the industry in Canberra. Okay. So that's where you started. Yes. Good old Fishwick. And what made you like – I mean, in some ways this Mm. is the least interesting part of the Mm. story to me, but like why did you start? Why did you think it was like something that you wanted to do? Money. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, Well, it was – it was – it wasn't um, specifically like the sex industry equals money. It was like I'd left um, a job because I hated it and I was like running low on my savings and I was like I need to take on another job and I had a friend who worked in the industry um, who suggested that, you know, I give it a go. So I gave it a go. Um, I started at an erotic massage parlour in Fishwick and I got to – get my gear off and give hand jobs and um I liked that and also guys called me attractive or sexy or pretty or my naked body gave someone a hard on which I had experience with but these were people who didn't know me from a bar, a bar right. so, you know these these they, these people didn't know me at all and um these were conventional normal guys guys who you know, some of whom I wouldn't expect to look at me twice down the street would pick me from effectively a, like a lineup of, of available ladies. They would pick me and I'd have these amazing experiences. And I started to meet new people and hear about their lives and their stories. And I found that I was, you know, I was relatively easy to talk to as well. Like I don't, I don't judge anybody so much as nothing someone can say at this point will shock me um and it's like we all have our vices and we all have our stories um people see me for a lot of different reasons and I don't judge them on any of that you know um because we all have needs and and all our needs are different 
And what's well, it's so funny, isn't it? Because I do mm. think that we often have a sort of uh, I don't know what the word I'm, t- but like we have one view of why people you know involve themselves mm. in like you know in using sex work, mm. where like we don't have that about running, or we don't have yeah. that about food, or we don't yeah. have that about you know you don't go. You, you eat for a myriad of different reasons. Mm. Some people eat because they're hungry. Mm. Some people eat because they need nutrition. Some people eat because they're overeating or they're stoned yeah. or it's late at night. Like there are a yeah. million different reasons to eat, you know. Mm. Yet we seem to have a sort of um, monolithic, that's not the right word I'm looking for, but whatever I'm trying yeah. to say when it becomes. So your experience has been that it is very much mm. like any of those things where people are doing it for a range yeah. of reasons. I think, and I think I, I have to, I find I have to be really like careful when I talk about this because what people want from me, at least what I'm finding publicly and we're moving away from it slowly, but in, in public discourse of sex work, they want me to be uh, very black and white. So I'm either um, mother Teresa and I'm seeing the lonely and the disabled and, and, and the heartbroken and such, or I am horribly abused um, and I'm just constantly, you know, down on my luck and blah, 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 blah. And um, I can only speak to my experience and my story. People end up in this industry for a variety of different reasons. They stay for a variety of different reasons. Um, And I see my clients for a variety of different reasons. And I I, I mean, I did – there was an ABC show I did called You Can't Ask That, right? Uh And – Great TV show, by the way. It was people, so cool. If people haven't seen it, they basically, I mean, mm. really brilliant idea. And yeah. Well, why don't you explain yours? And So they, they took a bunch of sex workers and um, we came from all over the country. Um, and basically they sat us down with a pile of questions um, and we read the questions out and then we answered them. And, and the idea is like, you can't ask that. So it's questions that people had submitted anonymously online. So, oh, there was some great – like there was some that weren't in that show that were just classic. Um, but, and, like, but, what, but what are the questions? What are those questions that um, you mostly get asked? What are, what are people's curiosities oh, when they like, find out that you're a sex worker? How much do you get paid uh-huh. is like a big one. How do you deal with the fact that you meet fugly people? And I'm like, well, I don't – think of people that way in like this is sex work in part has changed the way I see people as well um I find something in everybody there's something beautiful and unique in every single person in the world and that might sound sappy but it's true um and and I feel like I owe it to people to find that in them because a lot of people found that in me when I couldn't find it in myself I mean the idea that you are giving that like I mean Again, like I agree with you with the mm. whole fugly, you mm. know, thing is mm. so like it's so a very, you know, one way of looking yeah. at your life. But also, I imagine that for some people who mm. you know might fit into what people would label as that, mm. then those moments of connection with those people are often much more important to them. Yeah, because perhaps they're not getting it in our you know mainstream life because idiots reckon they're fugly. Yeah, and you this know? is yeah exactly. <laughs> and I think the other thing is it's like I think what often they're shocked and people are shocked to hear is. Like, I know what that's like. Right. You know, people look at me and say, oh, you're so hot and this and that and the other. And, and clients will say it to me and you're so beautiful, you're so hot. And, and I'm like, well, I wasn't always. Like, and, and I don't feel bad about that. Like, I, I was an unfortunate looking teenager. Like, I had some, had some styling issues. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I don't think, I don't think I'm conventionally attractive now right. or anything like that, right? But 
I'll, um, I'll show you a photo one day of when I was uh, fat and had shame-worn blonde tips. So oh, don't worry. <laughs> don't, like, I found an old ID the other day and I was just like, fuck, man. It's rough. Um, but so I also have like mad resting bitch face. So people think I'm pissed off in 99.9% of the time. But, you know, so people, I think I'm able to find a point of connection with people. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of different points of connection with people. Um, but a lot of the other questions, like, uh, you know, one of them was like, do people use your body like a rental car? And I'm like, well, no, they don't get in and drive off. They can't take me with them. Right. Like, well, they can, but that's by arrangement and um, we negotiate (laughs) terms in advance. Um, like I do offer travel. Um, but this is the thing. It's like, um, I'm very used to, used to having to patiently explain to people. But with the show, I was able to – they were like, just be yourself. Right. And I remember walking in and, and um, uh, Tilly, who I was, I was paired with, who is just the most amazing writer and activist, and I am constantly in awe of, of, of what she does for our industry and, and in general. Um, and she was wearing this beautiful little red vintage dress. And I was like, oh, wow. I'm wearing like some faded jeans and a Transformers Optimus Prime singlet. I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like um, we got onto the discussion of why people came to see me. And I was like, Do you know what? Some people come to see me for a shag and I don't care. I like shagging. Shagging's great. Who doesn't love a shag? And I think I said the word shag like eight times in a minute. And I'm like, stop saying shag, Lucy. They get it. Um, but this was one of those things where it's like, some people just come to see me for a route and that's right. totally fine. That's kind of what I'm into. It's kind of why I'm here. If I didn't like it, I probably wouldn't stay. Well, I mean, some people come and see me do my show. Well, I think about this as I'm writing my mm. show, you know, is mm. like this thing of going, like I'm doing work in progress shows at the moment. Mm. So a certain audience comes to those who wants to see you work out ideas and yeah. see a longer show and see it yeah. not polished. But there's all sorts of other people who are like, no, nah, I'll wait until you get it good. Yeah. I just want to come and laugh for an hour and then yeah. go home and I don't even want to have to and think then I'm about good. it. I'm and then I'm spent. Right. <laughs> That's fine too. You can enjoy it that way. <laughs> But I think it's like, I think it's like one of those things where, you know, I, do you know what? I, I've had like, obviously I have negative experiences on the job. Like every job will have never negative experiences. Some days I, you know, yesterday afternoon I had to put my, uh, my work phone down. I had to turn it off. I had to put it down. I had to put it on the other side of the room and walk the fuck away. And I have an assistant who helps me. With, you know, um, getting from point A to point B and, and doing a lot of stuff like Sexpo and, and stuff like that and, and um, the more public side of, of what I do. Um, but the calls and the messages and the emails, for the most part now I deal with myself um, because I think it's really important for me to get a vibe for people early on because sure. it helps me, I guess, vet potential clients and make a decision. Um, and do you feel like you are getting a good sense of that? Do you ha- feel like you hone a sort of sense of like this doesn't sound quite right or I just yeah. don't like the way this person's like even just yeah. asking the questions or whatever it is? When I made the transition from sort of massage and and I started porn and then I, I transitioned to being an escort as well, mm. I was working with an agency. I worked with them for about three years. Um, so they did a lot of that for me. Um, and then, you know, I, I sort of went out by myself at the start of, um, last year and it was scary at first because you, you really have to, um, have a sense of people. Um, and you also have to be able to trust your gut and, and your instincts. If something doesn't feel right to me, even if I, I I could have made a booking 
right? I could have made a booking with someone and then something just seems off. I will cancel that booking. And that person could be absolutely fine. But if I have this feeling that we're not going to mesh, it's not worth their time and it's definitely not worth my time to put us both through, you know, an hour or however long of awkward awkwardness. Um, I, I, I have very strong, I guess, ethics about what I do. If I don't think I'm going to be able to perform the best possible service or give someone what they need, I won't take their money. That's uh-huh. not fair. Um, I also, you know, think a lot about things like photo shoots I do and, and the way I present myself, um, particularly through porn and stuff like that as well. Some of the early porn I participated in was garbage and I can honestly say that. Like I was rough as guts when I started in porn. I was like, eh. I just sort of didn't know. I thought you rocked up and just – had a bang and 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 I, I I look at some of it and I'm very much like, why are you just lying there, Lucy? Could you fucking do something? And I mostly don't watch my own porn. Well, tell me this is because I mm. don't don't know how it does work, mm. um, but I've like I've seen it obviously. Mm. I'm a human being, but mm. like I do kind of go. Do they give you any like when you get into it? Do they give you advice on how to, like, I mean, yeah. cause like, I mean, because it'd be like, I imagine just like mm. somebody going, oh, well, on neighbors, they just walk around and say stuff, right? Yeah, right. Whereas I imagine it's probably much harder than that. There's right. no script, unfortunately. I like, I don't know, maybe there's probably pawns that do have scripts. Right. I have not had one yet. Well, sometimes we'll have screen, like, like scene rundowns and stuff, but, um, I guess early days, a lot of the porn I was used to is we'd we'd do a set of photos first. So you do a set of still photography while everyone's makeup is still on and the mascara isn't running because it's really important that you all look pretty for those. See, um, already insights. Right. Um, but also, and people think it's just like purely you do the photos for that reason, but it's also giving you a, an idea of how you can use the space. Like, oh, cool. So we can bend over the couch in these eight ways. Um, okay. Oh, look, yeah. it, it pops out. Yeah. Right. It's a recce. Um, Exactly. So that helps you sort of space things out and figure out how to do things. And then for the most part, I've found that we try and let scenes run pretty organically. Um, With stuff like oral and stuff like that, often you need to get really tight shots and you need to go in quite close. So what you'll find is there's a little bit more stop start during those kinds of activities. But for the most part, when you get to the point where people are, you know, it's like P and V, boinking um that's like technical terms yeah right very technical (laughs) um that's when we tend to try and let things run quite organically and a lot of what i've been shooting lately has been like ethical and and feminist pornography so very much so when you say ethical and feminist pornography because this is what i I am interested Mm. in like you know because clearly you know you're a person who you know, well, I would mm. think is you know has a, a firm feminist streak, and yeah. when I've seen you speak and those sort of things, mm. so uh, what does that mean when you say you know feminist porn? For, I guess I I've been I guess leaning away from the term feminist porn, but a lot of it, you know, initially it has a lot to do with the fact that for the most part, porn's been created for the male gaze, often by men. Um, and things like, you know, women's pleasure and stuff like that hasn't really been a consideration. And, you know, then you've got this whole spate of feminist pornographers that are coming in and it's porn made by women for women and men, made for everyone really. Right. Um, but they're looking at, you know, the way women are treated and, and, and women's pleasure and, and we're trying to make it, I guess, a little more realistic and a little less like a woman is just here to be used and then come on. Um, because that's basically what porn's been for some time. Um, and 
I I find that I'm I'm leaning towards a, like away from that more towards ethical porn, which um is as much about that, but also about things like making sure performers are paid. You know, um, we're crossing all the I's and dotting all the T's with testing, with paperwork, making sure that everybody is treated fairly, and that we have a really safe um set. And um, that's about you know taking into consideration performer behavior and and, and stuff like that as well. Um, I'm going to be developing my own content this year, you know, producing and directing my own content. And I want to make sure that I am, I am creating ethical pornography. I want to create stuff that's um, a good experience for performers who are within the porn as much as it is for the people viewing it. And I also know that, you know, a lot of pornographers will say, look, we're creating adult entertainment and we shouldn't have to consider, you know, that other people are going to view it. Like we're not creating porn for for kids, you know, we create it for adults, you know. So it's it can't be our responsibility to like educate people's children for them. The problem I have with that is that people are like, people are going to see my content and they will potentially garner knowledge from that. Uh, I mean, mm. not just potentially. I mean, I think yeah. you're absolutely right. There, yeah. is, there is no doubt in my mind that, I mean, the first time I saw a fully mm. naked woman, like internally fully, like as mm-hmm. in like I had seen pictures of naked yep. women, but they were always like, you know, legs closed, yep. like full, you know, 70s, 80s yep, bush, yep, yep. you know, old school sort of playboy sort of photos. Like yep. hadn't seen a naked woman until I saw an actual, you know, naked woman. Exactly. Right? Whereas now you've got kids 13, 14 and mm-hmm. whatever who are not only, I mean, particularly boys, but I imagine mm-hmm. girls as well, like and who are not only watching this stuff, but mm-hmm. like you said, they're learning from it. Exactly. At least and by the time I saw that sort of stuff, I was old enough and had done enough stuff of my yeah. own to go, oh no, that's show business fucking. Yeah. That's not how people exactly. are fucking at home. But if you're 14 or whatever. You don't always know that. Right. And I think I think the thing about it is, um, I think part of that is very much like porn has to be a part of a sex ed curriculum. You have to be able to sit down with, with young people and explain the difference between fantasy and reality. We do it with every other form of pop culture or, or um, literature, you know, games, movies, etc. cetera. We, we explain that there is a difference between fantasy and reality, fiction right. and nonfiction. We don't show kids uh, the Fast and the Furious movies and then go, mm-hmm. go for your else. Exactly, right? So we need to do that with pornography. People don't want to talk about it though because people don't want to talk about sex. Right. Um, and, and, and why is that, do you think? Like, um, what's the major – do we still have such a problem talking about oh, sex? There's a huge Puritan streak that runs through our society. Um, like, like, in, like in Australia, we're never going to get the sex ed- – like at least I don't think in my lifetime we're going to get the sex education program we need because we are still dealing with people – like religion – is a huge problem. <laughs> like faith isn't a problem, but I think religion is a massive problem because I think that definitely dictates how a lot of people live their lives. And unfortunately, a lot of those people are politicians and 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 supposed change makers in our society. And I think that's a problem. And as much as there's voices like mine and my colleagues standing up and saying, hey, look, you know, we need to change here. It's really bloody hard when people in positions of power um, don't want to talk about this. I want to shut the conversation down. You know, I mean, people seem to think that some of the, you know, scariest things I've done have been relating to my work. But no, the scariest thing I've ever done was sat next to Melinda Tankard Rice on an ABC television program because right. I thought she might shank me. Yeah. Um, and she's also a truly horrible human being. Yeah. Look, I, I've <laughs> I've uh, had dealings with her in the past, and they've always been reasonably respectful, even though mm. um, I 
we have very mm. uh, diametrically mm. opposed views. Um, although I have some sympathy sometimes mm. towards like some of the points she's making, yeah. particularly about sexualization in advertising oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. some of those messages. I actually do yeah, mm. occasionally think she makes some good points, but I feel like what happens with people mm. like that is they become mm. so one note in their mm-hmm. approach because they become so passionate about the thing they're advocating for mm. that then everything becomes problematic. And it feels exactly. like that's where they've gone with collective shout and all those know, sort of things. I think what I find frustrating is people always seem to say we want to, they always, like organisations like Collective Shout and stuff like that are like, we want to advocate for this group and we want to help this group mm. and somebody think of the children and somebody think of the poor whores and all this other stuff. And I'm like, okay, so we're telling you what we need. Right. You know, young people are explaining what they need but you're not listening right right and and don't come here and tell me that you want to help people and then proceed not to help them because that's garbage that's bullshit like we need to decriminalize sex work that's what we need we're telling you this this is going to help in this many ways don't railroad the conversation and try and tell me what i need you don't get to dictate that to me go away this is a question i've been asked a couple of times uh and i think even on the sovereign Mm. sire podcast and it was one that i realized i I wasn't actually equipped mm. to answer. So what is, what is the legality of like sex work in Australia? How does that actually it work? It differs state by state. Right, because there are some places where it's... Okay, New South, well, Wales is the, New South Wales is the only place where it's decriminalised. Okay, so right. that means that all sex work is decriminalised? It's decriminalised. It means that, you know, um, I can... I, if something was to happen to me on the job, I could go to the police right. and say, you know, this has happened to me. And they their first thought won't be like, okay, shit, what are we going to do with you? You know, whereas you've got a legalised system in, in uh, Victoria uh-huh. whereby... So in, in New South Wales, I can work from home, right? right. I can have an in-call mm-hmm. where someone can come and visit me. And, and I have I, I can work on my own terms. In Victoria, you can only do out calls, which means your only option is to either work illegally or go to someone's house or go to someone's hotel, which is already, uh, in my mind, a safety concern. I mean, going to, uh, I mean, a stranger's house mm-hmm. or even a hotel, you mm-hmm. know, like is... That seems why is why is that? That seems like such a weird thing. Yeah, I don't like, understand. It's how okay that's if not you helpful. go there, but it's not okay if you do it at your own house. Yeah, that See, just I, seems the like logic. A, the logic that, yeah. is not strong with that, these ones. No, um, but no. also, you have to have an uh, you have to have a, a registration number. You have to register, which in I imagine would stop a lot of people from doing that. Well, in the first part place, of right? the the luxury of sex work for a lot of people is there's a sense of anonymity, yeah. and that takes away from that sense of anonymity. Um, also, you know, to work in brothels, you have to have a medical certificate, which a lot of people is like, that's really great. But you know what? We look up, we do look after our health. You know, we don't need to be shepherded to do that. Our health and our body is our money. Right. So if we got sick. We probably wouldn't earn any money, so if so facto. But uh, the problem with that is you have to have that certificate. Like um, sometimes you can't get that, you know, under your under your working name, and right. sometimes like there's all sorts of issues with that. So again, it's just another attack on people's privacy, which is just all totally fine because we're whores, you know, like fuck, we don't matter. Um, but also in Victoria, if you got attacked on the job. Uh-huh. And you don't have an SWA number. In historically, there's been a, more cases than I care to admit where they've tried. They, they've been like, "Well, we have to arrest you, or we have to charge you because of what you've done." The fact that you've just been raped, 
well, you know, and and you you're noticing like here in the ACT, for instance. So like, what's the what's the legality of it in the ACT? Um, so I can I can work here, but if I say I shared a um an apartment with another worker, um, technically I'd be operating an illegal brothel. Even if that worker was just there for my safety or security, right. so you know. Uh, but even even then, I could have just a friend there who's not a sex worker, and potentially they'd be like, "Well, are you sure?" And I'd be like, "Look, I'm pretty sure because they have a day job yeah. that is not set." Seriously, anyway. look at Gary's hands. Yeah, right. He's not touching this anyone's cock with those rough thing, hands. Right. <laughs> this is the thing. It's just it's it's and and it's also. Um, there's like all over. There's different, you know, legalities. Uh, where's the worst place in Australia? Where's the like the most res- restrictive for sex workers? Is there? for me, it's. I think it would be South Australia, South Australia because there's, you know, you could go there as a private worker and you can you can function, but there's risk, and they're doing a lot of raids currently. That's been in the media a lot. They're doing raids of, of brothels and stuff like that, and and women. For what reason? Why are they doing that? Because it feels to me like, I mean, all the regular mm. crimes. No mm. problem with that. I mean, I understand. If, mm. like, if, you know, underworld figures, uh, like, you know, uh, you've got a whole bunch of bikies running illegal guns out of the back of the three brothels mm. they own or whatever, then mm. persecute that stuff in the way that you've got to persecute yeah. any other yeah. similar crime. But are these raids just on sex workers doing sex work? Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're basically trying to say after us to ignore it, like, leaving them alone for so long, now they're trying to. You know, now they're like, we're trying to uphold the law. And I'm like, but you haven't upheld the law for so long. And it's, there's, there's no, you know, I find it really frustrating because I don't know precisely why, you know, I think sometimes, to be honest, it's just so they look like they're doing something. Uh-huh. Um, but. Well, it clearly is though, mm. because I. Firstly, mm. unless, you know, mm. hey, again, like you said before, mm. nobody wants like, you know, uh, everyone wants to stop you know, sex exactly. trafficking, things like that. If, exactly. if you have some tip that like there's mm. some place that has, you know, a whole bunch of people who mm. came here on visas to be, you mm. know, to work at a shop and mm. are now like forced into sex work exactly. or whatever, go in, help those people, exactly. bust that shit wide open. But like, firstly, the one thing that we all know is that like mm. sex work is happening. I mean, mm. this is the thing. Like in America, most of the places you go, mm. in fact, I think most of America, it's pretty illegal most of yeah. the places, right? Like Nevada, like but Las Vegas but has guess like where the it's happening? Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. It's happening everywhere, you know, and everyone knows it's happening everywhere. All you're doing is making these people who are, you know, fulfilling a service that clearly exactly. is in you know, demand, mm. then you're just making them be less safe be more fearful for their lives to be in these situations. I don't, and, and this is the problem. You've got organisations like Collective Shout and stuff like that who are big proponents, uh, proponents of the Swedish model. They believe we should bring the Swedish model into Australia everywhere all that, the time. That men should only come on people's breasts, right? Yeah, That's- right. No, I wish. Um, but this is I the thing. I don't know. If, is that Swedish? I don't know. No. I'm, I'm never good on what the the terms are. Like, we'll, we'll cover that later. Um, but this is the thing. It's like... So the Swedish model basically says because now this is this is how it's justified. This is how it's made palatable. Uh-huh. This is how it's explained to me, the poor, silly, stupid hooker yeah. um, that I am. Sit down there like we don't want to, you know, um, make life more difficult. We don't want to destroy your livelihood. We don't want to criminalize you. And I'm like, oh shit, thanks okay. so much. Well, that's a, that sounds good. Yeah. So we're going to criminalize your clients. Oh, okay, sure. So we're not going to destroy your livelihood directly we're gonna 
indirectly right. destroy livelihoods. So no, we're not going to make it illegal uh, for McDonald's to open. We're just going to make it illegal for people to buy hamburgers. Yeah, right? <laughs> this is the thing. So it's like it means that you've got situations like, um, you know, in Sweden at the moment we're hearing stories where – women are being like stalked by the police so you've got a sex worker who operates in a certain place and they will just watch where she is for right. the entire day and catch her, her clients as they yeah. leave you don't have a job anymore you're bait yeah and and this is the other thing and they don't always know what's happening so it's impossible but then you've got it's like illegal to live off the proceeds of of prostitution so you've got people's like uh, you know teenage son Sons being being charged because mum pays the rent. Landlords being like kicking women out of homes because they pay their rent via sex work. Like they 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 basically that's how they pay their bills. So it's like what the fuck, really? It's it's it's. I don't understand how people can justify making us unsafe as a way of making us safer. I, mean, I I don't Well prohibition has never worked. This no, it is hasn't. The, it's like historically it's never worked. It's and like abstinence only sex education. That's gone really well in the South. Right. <laughs> I mean, but that's absolutely true. In fact, they did a study that mm. uh, kids who had purity rings were uh, more likely to get STDs and STIs mm-hmm. because they didn't have the education because they'd promised that they wouldn't have sex and then of course they still did and exactly. then they picked up all these sort of things. And there was a lot of immaculate conceptions. And it's just that it's the same, you know, with any of these things. My, my, I would have no problem with the war on drugs if you mm. actually thought that you could win a war on drugs. But here's the thing that so we've stupid. learned forever is mm. that people will take drugs regardless mm-hmm. of the myriad of laws and criminal laws exactly. that are against it. And it's going to be the same with sex work. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen regardless. So if we exactly. live in a world where it's going to mm-hmm. happen regardless, then surely we have a responsibility to conduct it in a way that is better for the safety of all the people involved in something that's going to happen anyway. This is where I get ragey as hell about things like sex education and drugs and and sex work and all of it. And this is where I find people like Melinda quite so infuriating. Um one, because she yelled at me on the television, and that wasn't very nice. No, that is not nice. <laughs> um, but also, like, um, you know, they're advocating for my peers to be unsafe. They are, and they say horrible things about us. They call us right. the pimp lobby, and I now have that written on a Letterman jacket because I have a partner who is amazing and who bought that for me for my birthday. <laughs> Which was fantastic. Um, I, I, I always said it as a joke and then now I have one. It was beautiful. But they call us the pimp lobby. Right. You know, they uh, Amnesty International recently took on decriminalisation as their – basically their march with, with sex work. They're like, we believe that decriminalisation is best practice. It is what is best for sex workers and it is what will best enable us to fight things like trafficking because we need to not conflate sex work and trafficking. They are too totally separate issues right well that's the again it's the exact same thing it's like Mm -hmm. with the drug war Mm -hmm. you know it is one of those things where you're like well the reason people are dying is Mm -hmm. you're never going to stop them wanting to take drugs but at the moment you're letting criminals make the drugs exactly and you're letting this industry be a thing that can be dominated by people from the underworld or those sort Mm -hmm. of things because you've actually made it like that and in places where the swedish model is being implemented it's sending sex work further into the like into the underground 
again, you know, it's it's like and things like with Backpage in the States where they're trying to take away adult services, which for a lot of sex Ex- workers... Okay, so explain uh, what that is. Because Backpage, yeah. well, Backpage is like a website much like a Craigslist or something. A exactly. Bit, isn't it? Like it's a general thing, but it has yeah. a... A, a section that is yes. like for sex it's work. It's like the newspaper. Okay. Right? right? It's like those ads with like the pictures of lips and the black and white photo and stuff like that, you know? It's like that. Um, now, for a lot of sex workers, um, that's one of the only forms of advertising they have because it's it's relatively inexpensive. Uh-huh. Um, and there's directories and stuff like that. And I'm very privileged in the sense that I can afford to advertise on those directories and, and anyone will tell you in any business ever that advertising does not come cheap, right? Right. Um, for a lot of workers, particularly in places like the States, it's the only way they have to advertise. And it's the best way they, they have to advertise. It's quick, it's easy, it's up. Um, now, one of the initial things they tried to do is the Cook County Sheriff sent a, a letter to Visa and MasterCard and said, back page is for the traffickers and... Um, you're supporting trafficking by letting people use your payment gateways to pay for their adult services ads. So Visa and MasterCard said, we're not going to allow people to use our services um, on Backpage. Okay. Specifically for adult services. Mm. And it was like, great. So it meant that we couldn't use our money to pay for our ads. Uh-huh. And the only option for a while was Bitcoin. For a while, Backpage offered free ads, but that wasn't going to be able to happen forever. Right. Um, more recently, again, they've been pulling, they, they've pulled the adult services pages down from the States because they've accused the uh, guy who owns and runs Backpage of trafficking, which um, again, you know, he's had his lawyers on it and it's been proven. What, the logic that I don't understand with this is if this is happening. And I don't deny that it is possible that people are advertising on Backpage who potentially have people working under shitty circumstances. I do not for a second deny that that is quite possibly happening, right? But why not use that as a way to track these people down? Right. That's what I don't understand. And if you look at the stats about how many arrests have been made by – like, if you, like I, I wrote about it at the time on my blog and the, and the stats about how many arrests had been made by the Cook County Sheriff for trafficking and stuff. And the numbers don't, <laughs> they're not great in terms of there haven't been as many arrests as I predict there should be if they were using If it was these... legitimately just about, yeah, okay. Correct. So, because I guess this is the where we get to an mm. area where there, you know, there's probably some people listening mm. who are like, well, yeah, I'm concerned about mm. you know, sex trafficking. I'm concerned mm-hmm. about... Um, people in situations mm-hmm. that they, you know, that they've been forced in these situations mm-hmm. or, you know, those sort of things. And I, well, certainly from my point of view, and I'll get your point of view on this, but I think that what you're saying is that you ag- agree with that. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that if you decriminalize it all, mm-hmm. you can then separate the idea of like going after people who are just providing mm-hmm. a service that has a, a customer who wants mm-hmm. like so regardless of who's the criminal mm-hmm. or if they're all criminals yep. you want to call them all criminals yep. it's fucking happening it's been happening forever exactly and most of the time that's just a transaction that's happening between two mm-hmm. people who've agreed to have that transaction and yep. I can't see how it hurts the world in, mm. in, in, in much of a way unless you have a period, puritanical moral position exactly. and that's fair enough mm. you're allowed to have that mm. people are allowed to say I'm against sex mm. work in general but just say mm. that just be up. Don't 
pretend that you have concerns or cares or just say, I don't agree with Mm. it in any way. Okay, Mm. that's a position you're allowed to have, right? Mm. And we can deal with that. But if you're a person who says, well, I think it should exist Mm. and or I think that at least even if I don't love it myself, um, it's a thing that clearly exists. You know, I think that, you know, say my parents, for example, Mm. probably would prefer to live in a world where they think that sex work doesn't exist or they wouldn't know anyone who was in sex work or those sort of things. But I think they would also be the sort of people without wanting to put words in their mouths that would be like, well, it clearly does exist yeah and if it does exist i hope that Mm. people who are you know using it uh everybody's going to be safe and happy and all those sort of things so decriminalizing means that you can concentrate on those then within those industries Mm -hmm. who are doing the Mm. wrong thing yeah and it's also people can go and seek help so someone who is potentially being trafficked doesn't have to worry about going and having to say i've been trafficked into this situation and then getting arrested because I mean, people, it's the thing that stops them, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. And not everyone is able to seek help, but some people are. But it holds them back because they're worried about what might... They're worried they might get arrested. Exactly. And, and they've it's... probably been told that they will get arrested because, the, the, you know, the, that, that's part of that's the situation a method. That's in. a method of controlling people. But it's also, it's also... Okay, if you look at, for instance, the, the murder of Jill Ma, uh, right? Which was yep. horrific. That... Uh, her murderer had assaulted sex workers, but... That wasn't taken particularly seriously. He right. was unprocessed. This wasn't something that was taken as anything of great import because these women were sex workers. And that's exactly why it was. No one will ever be able to tell me otherwise. They didn't take it seriously because they were sex workers. And obviously because we're sex workers, we're asking for it, you know? Right. Um, you know, and some of us don't even wear, shorts, wear, wear short skirts. So I'm like, shit, how can we win? Well, I mean, 20 years ago, to be honest, even when I was doing journalism, mm. The amount of times that you get a police call and then mm. you'll go to do, and then it would just be like it's it's just a domestic. So firstly, yeah, we're still just coming out of and very slowly coming yeah. out of a world where the idea that you could just bash your wife at home was okay. Yeah, the let alone the idea that these people are now so. The the last two incidents mm. of massive violence in Melbourne were both mm. by people who were out on bail or out mm-hmm. having had a history of crimes of violence mm. against women. And we clearly yeah. do not take violence against women enough as a foreteller of exactly. more violence that is to come. Like, exactly. I mean, it's been the pattern of so many. The guy who uh, ran his car in and killed a whole bunch of people had yeah. a, recently had like a home violence situation yeah. as well. We have to start acknowledging that these are foretellers of bigger I, things. But I've, you're right. Sex workers in particular, yeah. their voices are disregarded. But what I've what I've had to realize, so this is where this is where I try and be quite reasonable, uh-huh. right, with you know certain activist groups that I don't agree with um, that have already been named, but um, they don't care about me. What I've realized, and and this was a harsh realization, and it started as soon as I started speaking out more about mm. my industry and about what I do. Um, I have never experienced that level of hatred in my life from people I didn't know. And that is the only way I can honestly describe it. Um, I was told like online by these people who were there to rescue and who want to advocate for women. I was told that my concept of consent was somewhere between Bill Crosby and Ted Bundy. I was told I should be taken out the back and shot. Um... I've been I've been called a whore. I was told like it was things like don't you go don't you have some pensioner's dick to suck? And I'm like yeah. So what if I fucking do? Right. Um, like I mean, if do you know if what? he saved up his pension for it. Yeah, and do you know what? <laughs> like respect for him for keeping it going like into his old age. Good right. on you. This like might, this might be his last good memory. So fuck <laughs> oath. Um, but 
you know, this this sort of vitriol right. is coming from these people yeah. who, for all intents and purposes, like in front of the camera, right. are quite reasonable. Um, I've been approached by members of that organisation in public at events before and they don't yell at you. They try and sound like they're having a re- like a super reasonable conversation with you. But I, I've had to leave an event. I've, I've managed to get out of a conversation. Like I've been like, yeah, great talk, excellent. And I've walked away from an event shaking because these people don't stop. And they will find you online. I, I, I did a keynote speech at the ANU for Sex and Consent Week. And some of the stuff that was posted online about me, particularly a certain porn scene I'd done where I did anal, and it was not comfortable. It wasn't painful. It was just uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Sticking things in your butt is weird, guys. It's like not, not weird in terms of doing it. It just feels weird. Right. Right? From my opinion. No, no, no. I mean, but pe- they... plenty of people find pleasure in it and all those exactly, sort of things. Exactly, right? And, you know, like there's, but you know, but this also. This is the thing. I'm not, just... so I'm not, I, the, one of the things I, one of the it's mantras. It's not a judgment. It's just no. an observation. One of the mantras, <laughs> one of my mantras is don't yuck somebody else's yum. <laughs> right. Unless exactly. their yum is like illegal, then you should probably. Yeah. Like, well, there's, no, I think that. there's a difference between. Yeah, like, right? I think we all agree. Well, mm. I mean, yeah. hopefully we all agree that. Legality, mm. it, like I mean, this is the whole idea mm. about consent and these sort of things mm-hmm. that we, we we should be pushing all these things about legality, mm. but not, you know, uh, th- yeah. then re- the rest we should be making because less judgment. Trafficking is illegal. Yeah, pimping is illegal. So calling Underage us the pimp lobby is illegal. Like, calling you know, us the pimp lobby doesn't really work because right. no one's advocating for that. Certainly not fucking Amnesty International. But when they were even considering decrim, there were like these groups coming out saying Amnesty wants to decriminalize pimps. And I was with my mum that weekend and I was on Twitter that entire weekend trying to post other information to these hashtags for the um, Amnesty ASEAN meeting because it was being bombarded with, like they were posting, putting flyers under the doors of delegates saying, don't decriminalise pimping. And it was, I didn't get much sleep that weekend. And by Monday we found out that they'd supported it. The motion had been passed. They supported decriminalisation. And I sobbed. I was with my mum in Melbourne for an event called the Festival of Sex Work. I'd done some um, some speaking engagements there and I was – I just sobbed. And my mother sat down with me and that was the first time she'd seen me talk um, outside of TV or heard me on, on the radio and stuff like that. And she looked at me and she said, look, I know now that this is where you need to be um, because I fought so hard that weekend. And people said – I get death threats, man, like right. every time I do something – um, because I'm proud of what I do. I'm proud of the people I work with. I'm proud of the people I see. Um, I am honoured to be able to allow these pockets of intimacy with people. It is a brave thing to do what I do. It is a very brave people, a brave thing to see someone like me for some people. Um, and I take that very seriously. And I can't put into words quite accurately how strongly I feel and the love I have for what I do people don't really get it and that's okay um but you know it's it's rough it is rough and there are days when I have to call my mum and have a cry because people aren't very nice to me (laughs) um and I I will sit there some days and I'll be like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? But then someone messages me and says, thank you for speaking up. Thank you for saying this because I'm out, my face is out there. I made a very considerable decision to do that early on. 
Um, my name is not hard to find and I will out myself this year fully. Um, legal name and all because people have, you know, aunties have started and it's swerfs, so sex work exclusionary radical feminists. Um, like it's funny because trans exclusionary radical feminists are turfs, so it's like swerf and turf. It's like, <laughs> right? It's like the worst pub meal ever. Um, but it's like this is the thing. It's like they start, they've started sending me um, – messages under my legal name uh-huh. with my real name. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm not going to let you use that as a weapon. My mum gave me that name. Right. Get get stuffed. Uh, it's the least porn name in the world. That's why I don't use it. But like, <laughs> I, um, I, I don't, it's the last thing that they've, they've, they, they, they can really use as a weapon and I'm not going to let them do that anymore. Like, so that's going to be another level of like outing myself, so to speak. And it's scary because outside of, you know, just the people who don't agree with what I do, you know, I'm very public. So I meet people who are fans of mine and I also deal with people who aren't fans of mine and, and don't read the comments is like, that's my other philosophy. Don't read the comments, but I still do sometimes. And it's like, I don't have enough body hair. I have too much body hair. Sometimes I'm flat chested. I have a big nose, my chin. I didn't realize there was a problem with my chin until recently. Apparently there's a problem with my chin. I don't quite know what it is. I rail against the prospect of having anything done to my body. And like, I have to turn to my, my partner every so often and be like, can you just remind me again about why I don't need a boob job? And he's <laughs> like, you don't need a boob job. And I'm like, okay. Cool, good chat. Uh, when I spoke to Sovereign, uh, one of the things that she said was actually the, the there was a freedom in once mm. there was you know pictures of her in mm. every you know facial expression, unimaginable mm-hmm. pose, etc. On the internet, there was actually kind of a freedom in that. Yeah, you know, you are you're so fully judged that perhaps mm. the, it, it comes with a freedom of going, oh well. You know? Yeah, I'm just like fuck it. I'm never going to always get it right. right, and I'm not going to appeal to everybody all the time. Um, like you know, I I get. I cop shit for being in the geek community, right? There's this concept of like the fake geek girl, right? And she's the girl who's kind of she she dresses in the the sexy costumes and she she's like, oh my god, look, I'm eating my my PlayStation controller. Whoops, um, like you know what I mean? And the, the, so there's this concept of, and I think when I started being more outwardly geeky within my escorting profile and really openly and unabashedly so, people thought it was a gimmick. Right. They thought it was something I was doing to just rake in those geek dollars, yo. Um, and I was like. No, it's just me. And I guess every day is a little more freeing in the sense that I have another name, right? But Lucy and that other person are the same person. And I I made a decision early on that I couldn't handle having this double life. I keep some stuff to myself. Of course. I have personal time. I have family time, right? That's a given. But I can't have this dual identity because I also have ADD and it would drive me up the wall. I wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, I've had to rearrange my life in the past year, you know, getting to, to, to find the best way to get through a, a to-do list from one to ten as opposed to like going on 80 different side quests. We talked about this. I actually, I was doing, I was talking on Periscope on our drive to Canberra, right? And I was saying ADD is like playing a video game 
and you're on the main story, right? But then you keep getting distracted by like 50 different fucking side quests that achieve <laughs> nothing. Like maybe you get like a bag of gold or some right. shit and an extra horse, but you achieve nothing <laughs> on these side quests. And then eventually you get back to the main story like eight days later, like seven hours of gameplay later. You're like, oh yeah, shit, that's right. This was happening. Cool. Well, look, I could talk to you all day, but, I, <laughs> but we actually have t- spoken for a long time and I, I'm aware of the fact that we both uh, have other work to do today. So uh, let's finish it up in a minute. But there's a question mm-hmm. I always like to ask people just because I'm interested. Um, do you think about death at all? Do you, what do you think happens when we die? Is that, a, mm. a, is that something that is present in your mind in any way and defines who you are at all? I have to because I'm at risk. Right. Um, I, have, I, I have to, you know, my parents... My mother and my grandmother and my friends, my family have to accept that there's a risk with everything I do. And it's not just from people sending me death threats on the internet. It's because I do meet people who I don't know. Right. And as much as I can vet those people, there's a risk at any point that someone could flip their shit and something bad could happen to me. And you're a physically, you know, you're not, I mean, most of the people that you would meet would be physically I'm a probably stick. stronger. I'm than, a stick figure. I'm yep. a 5'2 stick figure. Like, like I did some martial arts, but <laughs> in, in a negative situation, I'm probably not going to be able to do much right. other than aim for the testicles yeah. across my fingers. I mean, that feels like a good start though yeah right to be honest. if i'm already near them yeah. little bit of <laughs> i've got a head start anyway where the testicles are. Uh, yeah so um i think about that a lot i i guess i don't i'm not religious and i don't have a lot of you know set faith but you know there's a lot of instinct in the women in my family like weird things will happen and and they'll just all things will start will make sense or someone will say something and it'll happen or sometimes something will happen and it'll be like a sign and we've had a lot of signs recently that my great-grandmother is sort of looking out for us. And I believe that. I believe that about, you know, my grandfather, um, who was a father figure in my life. And so I take comfort in that. And I think that the people that leave us are there for us in some way. I don't know what that is. Sure. I don't know what comes after this. But I think, uh, you know, I'm just going to make the most of what I've got while I've got it. And then, you know be a really bratty, annoying ghost to anyone who pissed me off <laughs> when I die. Like, I mean, I'm a witch. I can do all sorts of shit. Well, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to finally have this chat. Uh, I, I, I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Can Is there anything that we can plug for you? Is there any, like, you know, do people, you like people to follow you on Twitter or is there your yeah. blog or your so stuff coming up or whatever can, it is? You can find me on Twitter at LucyBXXX and it's Lucy with an IE, not a Y, or I will shank you. Um, <laughs> I blog sometimes at Sassy Strumpet, not as much as I do, but if you bug me, I'll do it more so that works. Um, also, we've got Sexpo coming up in Perth and Brisbane. I'm hosting the cosplay competition the sexy cosplay competition okay nice and it's amazing and people are so great and so cool and you should come out and throw your support behind these amazingly brave costumed just kick-ass individuals because i have so much fun there and you can come and play video games with me i will swear a lot i am not graceful but i will also wear costumes so hey it works uh, well, that sounds all really exciting. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to do my quick plug, which is that uh, I am on tour from uh, Monday, March the 5th or 6th or whenever it is. But anyway, a week and a half from now, in, uh, it starts in Adelaide. Then I go to Brisbane. Then I've got uh, Melbourne, Sydney, 
Darwin, Perth, Hobart's already sold out. But anyway, willanderson.com.au. Oh, we added a Wollongong show uh, this week. And look, there's some more shows in different places that come. So check out comedy.com.au or uh, willanderson.com.au. But so far in my trial shows, I feel like this will be um, a really exciting tour. So I'm looking forward to it. So uh, buy some tickets, come out and see the show. Uh, Lucy, thank you very much. Thank you. 